It's not sit, it's not stay. We focus so much on what our puppies can do when in actual fact what we should be really focusing is on is what our puppies are feeling. Hey guys, you're listening to the Dog Behind the Human podcast with me, your host, Dog Coach Francis. This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, and we are powered by Podmetrics. And today we have our special guest all the way from London. Hooray! And (laughs) without further ado, let's call on to the podcast, Kat Pollock-Smith, but she would like to be called Kat. So Kat, hello! Hi, how are you, Coach Francis? All right, thank you. Well, you don't have to call me Coach because, well, Coach is like... (laughs) A branding that I've used instead okay. of being just a <laughs> dog trainer. And you know how most dog trainers are being called dog whisperer? Yes. Right? So I prefer not to be called a dog whisperer. So we created the branding dog coach. And I prefer being coach at some point because, well, I think that's what we basically do. We coach people and then we coach dogs and find uh, the harmony between the two species, trying to make it work out building the trust relationship and that's how it went anyway but you can just call me francis all right oh, so let's not be <laughs> right <laughs> let's not to be form uh, not to be too formal about it all right so kat can you please share something about yourself i mean how do you how did you start your career into dog training so funnily enough i actually started out as a media lawyer so very far removed from being a dog trainer i decided that i wanted a complete career break and i wanted to do something different i wasn't enjoying the corporate rat race and and just it wasn't suiting me so i took a break having qualified as as a media lawyer doing contracts and television distribution mainly and i took some time out and i started volunteering with a animal shelters, loved it, and then realized that actually I wanted to um, know a bit more. I was working prom- predominantly with cats at that point, mm-hmm. and I was getting ripped to shreds <laughs> because the feral <laughs> cats were, were appreciating what I thought was perfectly acceptable behavior around them, and so I was, I was getting ripped to shreds, and I thought, well, this isn't good, so I, I started looking into doing some cat behavior courses. And then once you start learning about cats, you inevitably also start learning about dogs. And that's when my real passion began with dogs. So I started up my own dog walking business. And then from dog walking, I moved into training. And I did Mm -hmm. my diploma in animal behavior with an organization called COPE. I then went on to do an intensive course under the tutelage of some amazing trainers put together by some of your listeners may be aware of Victoria Stilwell. So she was one of my teachers. (laughs) So I studied under Victoria, which is amazing because Victoria is great. And then, yeah, I launched Cats and Dogs as a business in 2015. And it's been going great ever since. So even even in the age of COVID-19, I've still been able to do a huge amount of training online. So yeah, it's it, it's been great fun. I've, I loved it. I love working with my clients. And it's very, very far removed from being a media lawyer, I can tell you. Yeah. Who am I to say? I finished uh, electronics engineering and I was training people rather than dogs before yeah. I really got into training dogs myself. Anyway, think- so... I think that there are a lot of dog trainers who initially started out doing something completely different. And one of the things that I love the most about my job, and one of the things that I think you hit the nail on the head with, is most of what we do is actually with the humans. Most Mm -hmm. of what we do is about encouraging and empowering the human end of the lead. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as much as I love the animals, it's actually the human side, which I was enjoying the most. And being able to take some of those sort of negotiation skills and the ability to explain complex concepts to people simply and all of that stuff actually was really good training, bizarrely Uh enough. So I would say to anyone listening to this who's thinking, oh, I can't possibly train my dog or, oh, I couldn't possibly become a dog trainer because I, I had a you know 15 year career doing this no 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 Mm -hmm. don't if you want to do it you should just go for it right so it's just really amazing the transition from being a media lawyer into somebody who would train and volunteer for cats and then move on to dogs right now because i really started the other way around from training people i started training dogs and their Mm -hmm. owners and now i'm in my in my point in my career where and people are asking Francis, why don't you start training cats? So it's like the other way around for me. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, I've been seriously considering, and I was saying, you can ask me anything about dogs. But I've, with cats, that is something that I still have got to learn. So I might not be the best person about that. But it's really interesting that once you start in training with one field, you're being pulled into another. Yeah, so absolutely. it's just really amazing and how that's going. And it's just really amazing as well that here you are, you're a dog trainer, but at the same time, you know well about cats because that's very, something that's very rare in our industry. Absolutely. And I would say, well, I do have a few ideas about cats and about cat behavior. However, it's not as thorough with my studies and experience training dogs. But I'm really curious, what are the differences of behavior? Because this is probably one of the more common questions that uh, people will ask you. What's mm -hmm. the difference between a dog and a cat? Well, <laughs> quite a lot. The first main difference, I would say, is that in terms of their domestication, so mm -hmm. the process of, of evolving alongside humans, dogs have obviously been working with and alongside humans for an incredibly long time. And as such, they are much more bonded to people than, say, cats. We've, you know, over time, if you think about multiple different dog breeds, they've all been bred to do a specific job for us humans. So, you know, retrievers to retrieve, cavalier spaniels to be companion dogs. We've got scent working dogs. We've got eyesight dogs, greyhounds. You know, we've got pointers. We've got hunting dogs. We've got all sorts of different breeds that have been bred to do specific jobs. We don't have that with cats. Cats mm -hmm. have been bred by humans predominantly on the basis of looks rather than performing a function. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they've basically lived alongside us, but they've never really worked with us. And mm -hmm. so because of that, I would say that the biggest difference between cats and dogs is that <laughs> people say dogs have masters, cats have slaves. <laughs> it's a bit yeah, of a, yeah, I hear that a lot. But um, you'll hear that a lot. And it's it basically it comes down to the fact that because dogs have got this incredibly long history of working with us and alongside us, they're very keen to please if they want to do well. Whereas cats have a tendency to sort of be a little bit more, well, what's in it for me? All right. Is there something in it for me? Okay, I'm interested. But unless there's something in it for me, I'm going to go and do my own thing because that's what they've been doing for thousands of years. They've just been doing their own thing that happens to have worked for us. You know, they did their own thing. They hunted mice. They kept it away from our grain stores. Mm -hmm. We loved them for it. We weren't training them to do it. We just left them to it. So I think the big difference between cats and dogs comes down to, to that a lot of the time. And that's why you often get cats can be a little bit more difficult to train because they don't have that genetic being bred for a role. They also could be a little bit more difficult to train because they have a lot less desire to please. Mm -hmm. So because of that, if they get bored or they don't like it, they tend to go away. <laughs> right. Um, and the other thing also I would say is that in terms of their behavior, obviously some common dog body language, which is really friendly. For example, a dog may wag their tail as a sign mm -hmm. of appeasement. Mm -hmm. So if they come across a cat, they may wag their tail mm -hmm. and they may close their eyes and they may even go into a play bow if it's a young puppy. Mm -hmm. Now, from a dog's perspective, that's saying tail wag. I'm not a threat. I would like to engage in play with you. Play bow. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm wanting to be playful. Right. Right. From right. From a cat's perspective, <laughs> and tail wagging is never a sign of appeasement. It's usually a sign of I am not happy with this situation. Mm -hmm. at all and a play bow is usually when a cat gets down into that crunched position that's a i'm about to pounce and attack right so right, exactly. if you think about how dogs and cats communicate what to a dog is incredibly friendly to a cat is incredibly rude <laughs> <laughs> equally as well like from a cat's perspective you know they will sit and they will stare and then they will close their eyes and they will blink a dog may not fully understand where that is coming from. And so, you know, you get these, you get these like slight difficulties where you've got a puppy who's like, I really want to play with a cat and, mm -hmm. and, and she's wagging her tail and, and she's, she's sort of hunched down looking at me. And then I go up and oh my God, now I've got my nose whacked. So there's a big difference in terms of what their body language signals can mean as well. Also, the other thing I'd say is that dog's body language is a lot clearer. Cat mm -hmm. body language can be incredibly subtle 
So you're looking at a lot more to do with the eyes. You're looking at a lot more to do with like the position of the whiskers and the nose, which obviously because you're looking at an animal who is inevitably smaller, closer oh. to the floor, it's a lot harder to see. Wow. Wow. I remember the usual quotes or memes that goes out is if you give a treat to a dog, the dog thinks you're God. And if you give a treat to a cat, you know what they say? The cat thinks they're God. So that's yeah. a common thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. And then um, because of the pandemic that's going on, I've also seen some memes of cats. That's one reason that COVID-19 got out was because there was a cat in the laboratory that actually pushed the COVID-19 virus out of the ledge. So that's <laughs> how he got out. Table, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So. That that's really interesting about the differences of dogs. But my ne my next question is, what are the techniques that we are going to be using in training cats and dogs for somebody who doesn't really know operant conditioning? Can you please explain how are we going to train cats? Just in case we have a cat and we we'll want to teach certain behaviors to a cat. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it's very similar when it comes to the, the techniques that I use, whether I'm training a cat or whether I'm using a dog are very similar. I work on the basis that animals all learn. And if you go back to a very fundamental level, animals learn using both classical conditioning and mm -hmm. operant conditioning. Now, these are really sort of... <laughs> They're, they're somewhat academic terms and your average pet owner really doesn't really care what those two things mean. Uh -huh. Essentially what I'm talking about when I say classical conditioning is it's the pairing of something with a reflex response. So your dog knows where they keep, where you keep the dog treats or knows where you keep the dog food. As soon as you open that cupboard, they hear that cupboard, they come running. That's mm -hmm. classical conditioning because mm -hmm. we've got an instinctive response of, oh, my God, I'm anticipating food. I'm now drooling. And I've paired that anticipation of food to the sound of the door of that cupboard where the treats are or the, the sound of the treat tin or whatever it is. So you have the pairing of certain sounds or triggers with reflex actions. And that can be a positive thing. So, for example, if you say the word yes to your dog to indicate that they've done the right thing or you're using a clicker. That's all classical conditioning. Secondly, with dogs and with cats, they also learn that their actions have consequences. And that's where we talk about operant conditioning. And mm -hmm. this is where people get really confused because we start talking about punishment and reinforcement mm -hmm. and negative and positive, and it all gets very confusing. So for those of your listeners who are more interested in the sort of detailed part, I will go over it very briefly. And that is just to say that when we talk about positive and negative, we're thinking about it in a mathematical sense of adding or taking away. When we're talking about punishment or reinforcement, we're not talking about good or bad. We're talking about reinforcement, meaning the behavior increases and is more likely to be repeated, or punishment, the behavior decreases or is less likely to be repeated. So you can have negative punishment. I'm taking away something good, in order for the behavior to decrease. I personally will use a little bit of negative punishment. I will use, puppy is jumping up on me, I will turn my back on them. I'm taking away my attention mm -hmm. to decrease the level of, of, of them jumping. I will also use a lot of positive reinforcement. You do X, good consequence Y happens. I personally don't like to use what's called positive punishment, where I add in something unpleasant to decrease mm -hmm. the likelihood of behavior. And there's a lot of good reasons why that is. And I can talk about that a little bit more if you'd like me to. And I also personally don't like to use negative reinforcement where I take away something in order for the behavior to increase. Because mm -hmm. in order to do negative reinforcement, you have to have had something unpleasant in the first place. Right, right. So I like to use a lot of positive reinforcement because I like to make sure that things work well for the dog and there's something in it for them. Now, if you're training cats, you pretty much have to use positive reinforcement because if you like that's the only way, <laughs> if you try and use anything else, you're just going to find a cat that walks off and leaves you. And you're going to be standing there with your treat bag going, uh, I have no animal to train. Now. Um, 
it's pretty much they they're not going to stick around right they they're just they're not so you know if you are thinking of how do i get my cat to train into to go into its cat basket cuz i have to chase them every time we have to go to the vets you're not going to do it by getting a spray bottle it's not going to happen okay definitely um, Similarly with dogs, but dogs are that little bit more bonded to us, so they will put up with a lot more, but I would still highly recommend that you avoid using any form of positive punishment or negative reinforcement with your dog, purely because I just think it massively damages the bond between owner and 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 companion animal. Right. So we're talking about positive reinforcement, the use of force-free training, probably using lures or any yeah. kind of reward that um, an animal would want, right? So yeah. in your career, and I think this is something that's uh, very controversial, even uh, until now, modern technology and science is ruling. And we still get those people who still believe in the use of aversives, um, more typically the the term alpha, or you have to be being the pack leader or you need yeah. to be dominant. So maybe you can share your thoughts about the use of those traditional methods? Yeah, of course. So the biggest problem that we've had with traditional dog training has been, and, and just to clarify, okay, people who, who employ traditional dog training methods, there has been historically this big, I'm a positive trainer, you're an aversive trainer, we hate each other, we are right. at war. I mm-hmm. think that's really bad because there's a massive, massive misconception that people who use aversive techniques are cruel, are are misguided, they don't like dogs, they they don't care about animals. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think if someone is using aversive methods, there's no doubt in my mind that they love animals. They just may not fully appreciate all of the subtleties and the complexities that are going on. And unless you know what you're looking for in terms of dog body language, it can be really difficult to know that an animal is upset. So one of the things that I always do with my clients, and I'm sure you're the same, is I don't, I try and avoid referring to them as owners. I try and refer to my clients as being dog guardians. Mm. Because as a guardian, you need to advocate and speak up for your animal. Now, the only way you can do that is if you understand their signals and you understand if they are comfortable or not. And once you understand dog body language, what you often see with the use of of aversive techniques is a huge amount of avoidance behavior. That avoidance behavior isn't always listened to. And then that avoidance behavior can escalate into what is often labeled aggressive behavior. Mm -hmm. But it's rarely actually aggressive. It's more, I'm trying to repel you. I'm trying to push you away. I'm trying to say, please don't come anywhere near me. I've tried to avoid you. That hasn't worked. And now you're getting up in my face. And now you're making life very unpleasant for me. So now I'm going to snap and lash out. So one of the reasons why I don't like to use aversives is because I think fundamentally, when you are using them, you're inevitably going to be putting the dog into a position of discomfort. That's Mm -hmm. how they work. It's I do this, something bad happens, so I won't do the thing that I did before the bad thing happens. That's great in the sense that I won't say they don't work. It might stop them doing the behavior. But there's a big problem with that. You can use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. You don't have a lot of nut left. So the biggest problem I have with aversives is it doesn't teach the dog what to do instead. Okay. I do X, something bad happens. Well, I never learned to do Y. So for me, it's very important that you set the dog up for success. You would never leave a plate of delicious, hot chocolate chip cookies out on the counter and expect your child to not eat one before dinner. How many Mm -hmm. times do we set our puppies and our dogs up for failure by just not managing the situation? You know, we take them to the park, we let them off lead, we know they're not great at coming back, and then we get mad at them when they don't come back to us. Well, you set your dog up to fail there, (laughs) come on. So I think it's really important that we set our dogs up for success, and I think it's really important that rather than say, no, bad dog, we teach them what we expect from them instead, and we provide them with that guidance. And in that sense, it's more about leadership in a guidance sense than leadership in an alpha, I am the boss, I say you Uh do. Because that's not how a family relationship works. That's not how an interpersonal relationship works between two people. So why on earth would that be how it works between you and your dog? So for me, the whole concept of alpha, beta, pack leader, 
you need to dominate your dog or your dog will dominate you. I have yet to meet a dog who is planning world domination. I think they're just trying to understand how to live with us crazy non-dog things with these two paws that are up in the air. I think they're just trying to work out how best to work with us. I don't think they're trying to dominate us at all. The other thing I would also say about this whole concept that's that's underpinned a lot of traditional dog training is it was based on studies that were done, you know, coming up to 70 years ago now. So it's a long time ago. And one of the studies that it was based on was was basically on captive wolves. And they were not related. They were in a limited space. And there was inevitably going to be a huge amount of conflict over resources. And so inevitably, nature is very efficient. And rather than have to fight every five seconds, they just mm-hmm. they developed a hierarchy. And that is what they observed. However, when they finally got the research funding to go out and do field studies, they found that this isn't what dogs do. I'm sorry. And this isn't what this is not what wolves do in the wild either. They work as a family unit. So this whole concept of you must eat before your dog because the alpha eats first. It's not true. You look at a pack of dogs and a pack of wolves in the wild, particularly wolves, and if food is scarce, they make sure that the pups eat first and the oldest mm-hmm. dogs eat, eldest wolves eat first. So this whole concept of, oh, alphas get everything, they sit in the best place, it's not true. And also from a practical point of view, <laughs> what are you going to do? If you're going to use all of these sort of rank reduction programs or these status reduction programs to make sure that your dog knows their place, you got to be consistent with them. So what? If you've got mom, dad, kids, what are you going to do? Mom and dad eat before the dog at breakfast okay but you've got a young puppy might get fed twice during the day is dad going to come home from work so the puppy can (laughs) see him eat first that's not practical and it's pointless because the puppy's just like what are you doing you need to one of the other things i've heard is you must walk through the door before your dog right 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 your dog has to wait (laughs) right your dog must wait okay it's four o'clock in the morning it's pouring with rain your puppy needs to go out to the toilet you really want to have to go out and stand in the rain before your dog? I don't. I just want to open the door and let him go. I don't want him to barge past me. Of course mm-hmm. not. I want my dog to have manners, but I don't care if they walk through the door before me, especially right. if it's four o'clock in the morning and they need to go to the toilet and it's pouring with rain. I don't want to go out in my slipper and get wet. So this whole concept of, you know, you must dominate your dog. You must tell them who's boss. I don't think it helps with the owner's bond. I think it confuses the dog because they're smart. They've twigged. You're not a dog. And I think that it can really massively, massively damage the dog's appreciation of what it's like to be around humans because we become unpredictable. They don't Mm -hmm. always know that the punishment relates to what's happened. And one classic example, and my client won't mind me saying this, is I worked with a young family who had a gorgeous, gorgeous puppy. And unfortunately, they had read a lot about this whole alpha concept. Mm-hmm. And so every time the puppy weed in the wrong place, they would pick up the puppy, yell at the puppy, and then rub the puppy's nose in where it had gone to the toilet. Right. And this led to a couple of things. Number one, anytime the puppy needed to go to the toilet, he would get incredibly nervous, incredibly fearful, and would try and hold it. So we ended up with a puppy who was starting to develop mm, slight urinary problems. Secondly, because he was holding it, he would then also go and hide. (laughs) So they started finding that he would still continue to mess in the house, but he was now messing in areas that weren't so easy to clean up. Right, that's Uh, classic. (laughs) And then thirdly, when they did start to do toilet training, where they were taking him outside on a lead and encouraging him to go to the toilet in the garden, the poor dog was going, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go, because they're going to yell at me, they're going to yell at me. And so it took a lot longer to toilet train this dog. And unfortunately, he now, we're much better now, thankfully, it's taken, and we've been able to readdress it, and we've been able to build it all back up. But for a long time, this dog just developed major issues around going to the toilet, not that he was going in the wrong place. So I think that's the biggest concern for me if you're using aversives, is if you don't know what the dog is pairing it towards. Another example, if you don't mind me giving one. Go ahead, please. I worked with a client whose dog had terrible recall. They would call, you know, Fido, come back, Fido, come back. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Now this dog was incredibly intelligent. Um, Again, before they met me, they were advised to get a shock collar. And so that if the dog went too far, 
they would just press the shock collar and the dog would know to come back. Oh, dear. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> this was an incredibly intelligent dog. This dog worked out very quickly that if he ran away, he would get zapped. But if he ran further away, he was out of range and it was fine. So not only did we end up with a dog who had really bad recall, but we also had a dog who, when he heard Fido come, that was a cue to go further away. <laughs> and fast, yeah. So, you know, this was also a pointer. So as you can imagine, when they decided to run, they were going to run. And there was no way we were going to catch up with them. So again, it took a really long time for us to sort of counter condition that actually that command meant good things were going to happen, not bad things. So I would say to any of your listeners who are considering using any aversives, number one, go and find out about dog body language. And then once you know what signals you're looking for that say that the dog is uncomfortable, watch a couple of videos of traditional trainers online and look at the dog. Is the dog enjoying the experience or not? Secondly, have a think about how you would feel in that situation. A bit of empathy goes a long way here. Uh, you know, if every single time I made the bed, but I, I, or every single time my husband didn't put his, the washing in the wash basket, I hit him around the head. I don't think I'm going to get him to put the washing in the wash basket. It's not going to happen. So think about it from your perspective. You know, what, what things encourage you to do stuff? And it's usually not the fear of getting it wrong. And I'd also say, look, you know, the science is really outdated. And we know that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually the use of aversives can strongly increase the likelihood of the dog showing signs of what might be termed more aggressive behavior later on. So if you want to have a good bond with your dog, you want your dog to be able to know what to do and to enjoy spending time with you, and you want to ensure that you're reducing the risk of your dog developing aggressive behavior, I would highly recommend you avoid the use of aversives. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Now, this is one of the common questions that we get for positive trainers. There's still a little bit of pushback from the community who believes in being the alpha, of course, and other trainers who believe in using dominance. They're saying, well, your dog's following you just because you have a treat. What happens if you don't have it? have a treat and when we're using chokers it's just checking we're just trying to tell the dog that it's it's wrong or if we're using e-collars we have what they call slight uh, stimulation so some hidden words mm -hmm. um so have you ever got that kind of feedback from other trainers yourself because Absolutely. i I, I know i did yeah, absolutely. And not just trainers. I also get it from guardians as well, from, from pet owners too. So the way that I work is at the moment, your dog, let's say you have a brand new puppy, okay? Your brand new puppy knows that food is a good thing. We do not have to teach them that. They know that food is a good thing, okay? It's what's called a primary reinforcer because they've, they're primed. They already know it's a good thing. If they're a puppy, they also already know that play is a good thing. So until you teach them, good boy, good girl, good dog is a good thing, you need to rely on stuff they already know is a good thing. We need to know what is reinforcing for the dog. So a lot of positive trainers will start out using food and that is why. Now I get a lot of pushback of like, oh, well, if I'm a positive, if I train my dog like this, I'm just feeding them food. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more complicated than that, okay? <laughs> We need to set our dogs up for success, which means we need to ensure that they're not practicing behavior we don't want. So if you're a positive trainer, you need to also think about management techniques. For example, if you have a dog who likes to jump up at people, okay, you may need to find some way of making sure they can't practice that behavior when someone comes to your house. So having them behind a baby gate. As an example, we then also have to teach them to do something else. Okay. Now, to start with, in order to teach them that sitting is a good thing, it helps to, to pair I sit with a consequence which we know the dog already knows is good. Okay. So I would start off by telling the person to install the baby gate, the management technique. Then I would teach them to teach their dog a sit. And we would, yes, reward that with food to start with. 
The other advantage of there being a sit is that a dog cannot jump up if it has its bum on the floor. So it's an mm -hmm. incompatible behavior. So you've got management, you've got teaching a new behavior that's incompatible with the behavior you don't want. And then we're reinforcing it with food or with play to start with. But it won't necessarily always be that. So when a dog jumps up, what is it that they want? They want human attention. Okay, so right now, in the process of training them, we're getting them to not practice that so they don't get the human attention from jumping up because they're behind a baby gate. They do get food, and then once they've sat, they get food and they get the human attention. Eventually, once they've learned that sitting equals human attention, you can get rid of the food. And that's what I often say to my clients. There's actually only three commands that I tell them they always have to pay with a little bit of food or a toy or something else. But the everything else, eventually you'll just get your dog to do because they just wanna please you because they weren't that good boy, good girl, the good dog is a great thing to have happen. Like I said before, dogs have spent a lot of time working with us. They want to please us, but they just don't necessarily know what that means to start with. But once they do, you can certainly phase out the food. And for me, I think it's really important to also just say that what is reinforcing is determined by your dog. So, for example, when I'm training puppies to come back, when they've been playing with other puppies, nine times out of ten, they could care less. I could have filet mignon steak and they're not interested. Mm -hmm. It's about what's reinforcing for the puppy at that time. And if I'm interrupting that puppy from playing with other dogs, the best thing I can reward them with for coming back to me is not food. It's playing with me. So it's about knowing what is reinforcing for your pet. And it's not always going to be about food. And it's not always going to be about that. And it can, you know, often be, you know, something else entirely. You know, I've, I've worked with Jack Russell, who, for example, absolutely adored squeaky balls. <laughs> so his reinforcement was squeaky toys. Fine. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. Wasn't food. The reason why I'm not a massive fan of like the choke or the, the check or the e-collar is, again, how would you feel, and I'm saying this to your listeners, okay, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine that every now and again, completely random intervals, somebody comes and flicks your nose. And you have no idea why or when it's going to happen or how hard it's going to be or how sore that's going to feel. You just know it's going to happen at some point. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd start to feel pretty edgy. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. not conducive to learning. If you're feeling edgy, your body goes into survival mode. And if you're in survival mode, you're not going to learn. Okay. It's a bit like if I put a giant tarantula on my shoulder right now and then try and teach me how to speak Mandarin, it's not going to happen. So I would say that, you know, the, the biggest problem with, again, the, oh, well, it's only a check or it's only that. Yeah, but your dog doesn't know that. Your dog just knows at some point at random little intervals, I'm going to get punished and I'm not sure why. And I don't know what I should be doing instead. So I don't, how, to me, how is that fair? Before we proceed, it would be great if you guys also check out the other shows from the network. Parenting is a full-time job. Marriage, pregnancy, and parenthood are some of the biggest responsibilities we have to fulfill. Parenting is here to help you face these stages of our lives as real parents facing modern problems together. Hosted by Jelly Victor and JC Alelis. We listen in on some real conversations with fellow parents about the ups and downs of their parenting experience. Behind the scenes and everything else in between, Off the Record has got your sports fix. In this podcast, sit down with host Migs Bustas and take a closer look into the busy lives of the Filipino athlete as they talk about the nitty-gritty and pretty of sports in the country. Come and join in in the Kulitan Conversation. Captain America, Evil Demon Clowns, Alien Conspiracies. Come and join in on the fun. Listen to the girls, Jam and Dapsky, talk about anything and everything under the sun in Local Locus PH, your quirky pop culture podcast. What? do you really work on right now? I mean, there are trainers who work on agility for scent work. We probably are working both on pet dog training, but I'd like to know what are the specific areas of dog training are you engaged in currently? 
Yeah, so for me, my work is predominantly, um, my, my big passion is puppies. I really, really love working with new puppy parents, particularly first-time dog owners, because I think they can become incredibly good advocates for their dog, but also they can become incredibly good advocates for positive and force-free and fear-free training as well. And I, I really enjoy that. Like, I, I love I really, really love and I get a massive kick out of, as I say, the human side. So, you know, getting somebody who starts out going, oh, my God, why did I get a puppy? I'm feeling so overwhelmed. Um, and to any of your listeners who feel like that, please know it will pass. You will get through <laughs> this. It will be OK. I always say to my clients, um, particularly my puppy clients, dog training is simple. None of what we teach you is rocket science, but it's not easy because it mm -hmm. needs to be proactive. You need to be rewarding the behavior you want which means that if you're a human, you have to fight your natural instinct, which is to go, oh, everything's fine. I don't need to do anything. Oh, it's gone wrong. Now I need to react. You have to be proactive. And that's really tough. So I really enjoy puppies because they are challenging. But I think it's great, you know, being able to watch this dog grow and, and the people grow and, and to watch the bond between them grow. It's just one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. And I, I can't imagine not doing it. So for me, it's, it's all about puppies. I do do a little bit of behavioral work as well, where I deal with dogs with, you know, anxiety or what's often mislabeled aggression when it's, it's actually not aggression, it's fear-based behaviors. Mm -hmm. But my, my main passion is, is for sure is for puppies. And interestingly, because of COVID, I don't know if you've had this where you're based, but certainly in the UK, we're finding a massive, massive up increase in the number of people who have decided, oh, I'm in lockdown, I'll get a puppy. So my online puppy training is actually busier now than it was before. Wow. So this time last year, I had half of the clients that I have now which is really interesting. Unfortunately, that's led to a massive increase in the number of people getting puppies from less reputable places and puppy farms, etc. So I would urge anyone who's listening to this, who's considering getting a dog, please do your research, because I am seeing a fair few puppies who have come from maybe less than ideal circumstances. But yeah, no, I'm, that's my main passion, because I think if you can get it right from a young age, you can really set everyone up for success and having a really good long term. And it's great, because I now have clients who I've seen whose dogs are sort of five or six years old now, who I've known since they were puppies. So it's it's really quite nice. Right. I completely agree with you. And well, since you're following the work of Victoria Stilwell, I also follow the work of Dr. Ian Dunbar. Maybe yeah. you're familiar with him, right? So um, he's one of the first few trainers who actually started the puppy classes thing. Yes. And at least locally, I'm one of those few trainers who really dug into establishing what we call the puppy kindergarten class yeah. locally and now um, i'm really quite pleased that there are also other trainers who is now following the footsteps and trying to start and encourage the community to start young because yes. um, old wives tale would, would say oh you have to wait six months before you train your puppy not at all not at all. No, no, no. I, I would say that for any any people who are, are currently looking to or have got an eight-week-old puppy, your biggest priority for the first couple of weeks of you having a puppy is not obedience training. It's not sit. It's not stay. We focus so much on what our puppies can do when in actual fact what we should be really focusing is on is what our puppies are feeling. And I don't mean that in a sort of, you know, hippy dippy. Oh, yeah, everybody have fun. No, I mean it in the sense of if your puppy sees another dog and is feeling apprehensive as an adult dog, that's only going to get worse. If your puppy can't handle when you bring out the hairdryer because they got wet and you need to dry them, that's not going to help either. So it's really, really important that for those first couple of weeks, your focus is on getting your puppy used to as many different things in as positive and enjoyable experience and making sure that your puppy is feeling calm and happy and confident rather than worrying about sit. I've worked with dogs of all ages from nine weeks up to 10 years old, and you can teach a 10-year-old dog there may be more limitations in terms of what that dog can physically do. It might be a bit harder for them to sit because their joints are stiff. Mm -hmm. It will take you longer. You may have to break it down into more steps, but it can be done. The brain is still active. The brain is still learning. So I would say, yeah. And I think puppy classes are, are fundamentally so important. The only difficulty is, is that because they're so susceptible to new learning, they have to be run well 
and it needs to be someone who understands dog body language and can make sure that the timid puppies are not going, oh my God, this is terrifying. <laughs> and the really rude, boisterous puppies are not going, well, hey, I get to jump on everyone's head. This is the best thing ever. They've got to be really well managed so that the interactions are enjoyable for everyone. <laughs> and that can be quite difficult to do if you've got a room full of puppies all running around. So I, I disagree with Ian Dunbar to the extent that I don't allow a lot of off-lead puppy play in my classes, <laughs> purely because I want to make sure that I've not got a Great Dane playing with a Chihuahua hmm. and that the temperament and the enjo that it's enjoyable for both. So I might have two puppies off lead at the same time, but that's about it just so that I can make sure that they're both enjoying the interaction and they're both listening to each other. Because, yeah, you can you can let the dog sort it out. Well, you can let five-year-olds sort it out too, but it doesn't always go very well. <laughs> right. What's your advice with pet parents thinking... You know what? I have a problem dog right now. Uh, maybe my dog is bored. I'm going to get a new puppy and hopefully that fixes everything. Absolutely not. It won't. You're just going to end up with two, mis two badly behaved <laughs> dogs. If you want to double your problem, go ahead. <laughs> because what's going to happen is if you've got a dog who's having some issues and you get a puppy, guess who the puppy's going to be learning from? <laughs> okay. From the older puppy. Exactly. So the other thing, too, is that, you know, your older dog may not appreciate that suddenly you no longer have attention for them. So they might start to do a new the annoying behaviors to get your attention. And then you're going to have a existing dog who is now acting out even more. A puppy who is learning bad behaviors and puppies are full on experiences anyway. So you're going to have your hands full with a new puppy, an existing dog who's still doing the bad behavior and probably now doing new bad behaviors and a puppy who's learning both of those things. So I would highly recommend that a puppy is not going to fix everything. <laughs> And you're going to be having to deal with sleep deprivation all at the same time because puppies are hard work for the first couple of weeks and you're not going to sleep very well. So definitely not. It's a lot like when people have dogs that are suffering from separation anxiety and they decide to get another dog to keep their dog company. It very rarely works. And again, they've done studies where they tested the cortisol levels in dogs and the dogs that had another dog brought in. Yes, the cortisol levels went down a little but nowhere near as much as when they had a human dog walker come in and spend time with them. The, the cortisol levels dropped considerably more with the human. So dogs who have separation anxiety, they don't need another dog. They need human companionship and they need that underlying cause of the anxiety, the panic of being left to be dealt with. Adding an extra dog into a situation rarely makes things better. Right. So as we have more, we're talking about relationships, right? So, as we have more pet parents getting new puppies, I've observed that some there are some people that are pushing their boundaries of what a dog is and what a human kid is. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to what we call in a scientific term, anthropomorphize yes. the relationship. So maybe our listeners are not quite aware of what that is. And how does it affect if you start considering your puppy as if it's a small human baby and you treat it like a human baby. Oh, I feel this way. Or maybe my dog feels this way as well. So I think what's the of, impact? I think the massive impact with that is that, again, it comes back to dog body language. We're different species. You know, we've descended from primates. Primates are very touchy-feely. One of the things that's been the hardest for a lot of people, at least in the UK, to cope with when it comes to lockdown is the inability to hug your friends, hug your family members. We want touch. We want affection. That's how we show it. That's how we appreciate it because we're primates. Look at monkeys. You see monkeys hugging each other. They groom each other. They're touching each other all the time. Look at dogs in the wild. Have you ever seen a beach dog go up and hug another beach dog? I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I've never seen it. You know, there's that there's that gif of um, a collie who literally like reaches over and puts their arm around the other dog. And actually, if you know what you're looking for with dog body language, I can tell you right now that lighter colored collie who's getting the arm of the dog put around them is going, oh, my God, what did I do? Why are you doing that to me? This is not nice. So I think the biggest danger of looking at your dog like a small child is you're assuming that they're going to be experiencing the world in the same way that you are. And they don't. Dogs don't like to show affection in the same way that we do. They're not a massive fan of hugs and kisses and cuddles and having people up in their face. And more often than not, if again, if your listeners are listening to this, I would say try it. What happens if you stare at your dog for a long mm -hmm. period of time? 
you stare at your dog for like five, 10 seconds, I guarantee your dog will probably look away. Even if it's just flicking their eyes to the side, they may start to lip lick. They may start to yawn, all of which are classic signs from the dog saying, I don't like this. So if we start thinking of our dogs as being small humans, we can end up making the world incredibly uncomfortable for them without meaning to. And we start then putting them into outfits and making them dress up and, you know, oh, my dog looks so cute as a pirate. No, he doesn't. He looks really uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really important that, you know, one of the beauties of the dog-human relationship is that we've got two very different species coming together and bridging that gap and appreciating each other for what we both have to offer rather than you know, you trying to be a dog and your dog trying to be a human, let's just embrace each other for what we are and let's work on ways in which we can make that synchronized and enjoyable for both sides. Because if you start to think of your dog as a small child, you're not going to fully allow them to be a dog because you're going to be upset when they roll in poo or go and sniff on something or, you know, start humping your favorite cushion <laughs> because these are perfectly natural dog behaviors, you know, and that's, that's cool. That's fine. That's, that's what being a dog is all about. And there are ways that you can manage, manage those behaviors so that they're less annoying, but you know, fundamentally your dog needs to be a dog. They're not a small child. And I think there's a real risk that you can make them really uncomfortable if you start to treat them like a small kid. Right. I a hundred percent agree. What I usually tell my my friends, my clients, and my followers is it's okay to treat your dog humanely. And that's what we want. We want to treat them humanely. Absolutely. That's why we're using science-based dog training. That's why we're using dog-friendly approach. We're using lures. We're using treats. We're trying to understand their body language because we want to treat them humanely. And one thing that we do not want is to, uh, well, and a lot of people don't realize is if you're actually hugging your dog, kissing your dog, and that brings a lot of stress, you're making your dog feel very insecure, which is, if you think about it, you're torturing the dog without you knowing, and you're yeah, thinking, absolutely. hey, you know what? Everything is fine. He, he likes it, but if you just see the video or just check out the photo of a dog, they're just absolutely going Not nuts, really. trying to stop it, trying to just ignore the pet parent from all the hugging and the kissing. Absolutely. And I would also say that for some of my clients, um, particularly, as I say, my work mainly with puppy owners, they're really keen to kiss and cuddle their dog. And then they've been finding that their puppy is now starting to avoid them. So if they walk towards their puppy, he will move away. Once they understand dog body language, and I would always recommend that my, anyone who's got a dog works on the principle of a five second rule. So you stroke mm -hmm. the dog for five seconds, or you scratch behind the ear for five seconds, then you take your hand away. You give the dog the opportunity to say, yes, I would like you to continue that. You know, your dog may stop and go, oi, why did you stop scratching my ear? That was great. That's much better than continually doing something and not stopping to see if your dog actually enjoys it. Because if your dog realizes that they have the opportunity to get up and walk away and that you will respect their signals that they're not enjoying it, guess what? They're going to come up and ask you for more affection as opposed to, I'm now going to avoid you. And I personally would prefer to not be like the the auntie who I think everyone has in their family who comes up to you <laughs> at Christmas and no matter how old you are, immediately pinches your cheek and goes, oh my God, you've grown so much. <laughs> I don't want to be like that auntie to my dog. I want to be, oh my God, it's you. I love you. You're my favorite person ever. Not, oh God, what are they about to do? <laughs> and I think that's really important. So I always say to my clients, you know, don't be, and I, I apologies to anyone with the name Ethel out there. I'm, I'm, I'm putting you all in the same box, but please don't be an Aunt Ethel. You know, be be the person who your dog wants to spend time with and, and make sure that you're both enjoying the interaction. Because if you're both enjoying it, trust me, you'll, you will want, your dog will want to have more of them. Cool. Kat, what do you think is the hardest case that you've handled so far? Um, I mean, we all have that. And I still remember cases, well, not just one, but there's a myriad of cases that's yeah. just completely impossible sometimes to train. And you just have to tell them, sorry, your dog is completely crazy. Um, your think, dog is ruined. And I would recommend that you keep him. I mean, if you're going think, to be following the bite scales, right? So everybody yeah, has I mean, that. I, What's your take? I, I try and avoid any really serious, serious bite case issues because I think for me, I'm not a vet. 
And I think that if you are dealing with a serious, serious behavioral case, it's really important. In fact, it's, it's fundamental. You have to rule out pain as a contributing factor. You have to rule out medical causes. And as someone who's not a vet, I'm not in a position to determine or advise on those things. So whenever I'm dealing with any kind of behavioral case that's really dramatic, like very serious, particularly when it's involved a bite history, I always work alongside vets. And I always work alongside vets who have been trained in behavioral medicine as well so that we can combine our skills. But I need their expertise on the physiology side because more often than not, pain is a massive factor. I would say that probably the most difficult case I've had, or just generally speaking, because obviously client confidential, I don't want to go into too many specifics. I would say that generally the most difficult cases I've had have been cases where people have desperately wanted to get a dog and they've gone to a rescue or they've gone to an overseas rescue or, and they've just been so focused on getting the dog that they wanted not the dog that was right for them. Mm -hmm. So you end up in a situation where a dog with the best of intentions on all party sides just is in completely the wrong environment and we can't change the environment. So you end up having to say, look, I'm really sorry, but you have to rehome this dog because there's no way this dog can be rehabilitated in the environment that they're in. And that's really sad because you know you end up with a dog that's stuck in a situation that they're uncomfortable in that we can't change, who's bonded to humans who he now has to be separated from. The humans are devastated because they love the dog, but they can't move to the country, you know? So mm -hmm. I would say that for me, those are probably the most upsetting cases are where it's just been the wrong placement. So I would urge anyone listening to this who's keen to get a rescue dog, by all means, 100% support your local rescue, but please don't go and fall in love with the way a dog looks Make sure you get a dog who's really suited to you, your lifestyle, your house, your environment, because you're going to have a much better relationship with that dog long term than the dog that you think is the cutest, who may not necessarily be suitable for you. And a lot of people get very upset when rescues refuse to rehome. And they're like, well, surely my home is better than being in the shelter. And if it's the wrong home, no, it's not. So I would say those are probably the most difficult cases that I've dealt with are where it's just a case of right person, right dog, wrong match. <laughs> All right. So my next question is, maybe you can introduce us to your dogs. I mean, how many dogs do you have? Uh, what are they doing? Uh, I'd like <laughs> so to get to know this. Them. Is, <laughs> this is where it becomes really interesting. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned before, I started out in my career with cats. And I've always been a cat person. Funnily enough, that's why my business is called Cats and Dogs. It's because my name is Cat, so I couldn't really <laughs> call it anything else. But also, interestingly enough, because I started out as a media lawyer, my husband wasn't too worried about the fact that I was a media lawyer. And it was fine. Turns out, he's actually terrified of dogs. Ah. <laughs> so I am one of these incredibly bizarre dog trainers who is a dog trainer who does not have her own dog yet. No um, way. <laughs> currently working on a lot of desensitization and reconditioning of my husband to be comfortable around dogs so that we can get our own puppy at some point, hopefully in the future. That but must I'm doing be the hardest case you've had. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of work with him to help him overcome his fear and his phobia of dogs which is quite entertaining because obviously, you know, if I'm going out to go and meet, you know, a dog with a bite history, my husband gets even more anxious because he thinks I'm going to come home missing a limb or something. But yeah, so when I'm doing online training, one of the things that I've had to do is I've had to demonstrate what to do with your, with your dog. And obviously because I don't have a dog, what do you do as an online mm. trainer? Well, mm. you demonstrate with your cat. So <laughs> I have a cat who has trained. And so I demonstrate loose lead walking with my cat. I demonstrate how to teach a down with my cat. I demonstrate how to teach paw with my cat. So that's been quite entertaining because a lot of my clients don't expect that. So they're like, okay, right, you're going to demonstrate loose lead walking. And I go, okay. And they're like, that's a cat. <laughs> so, but it has worked quite well. And it, it usually does provide quite a, a source of amusement for everyone. And there is a certain level of irony that I am a dog trainer without a dog. One of the things that has been really great, though, is that because I, I did start out as a dog walker, I've had experience of so many different breeds, and so many different dogs and being responsible for them on walks and getting to know them from such a young age that I, it's meant that I've actually had 
quite a broad range of, of canine experience. I just mm -hmm. haven't had to live with one, which is a shame, but I'm, I'm working on it. It took me 14 years to convince him to get the cats. We're now into year eight of working on getting a dog. So, <laughs> you know, speak to me in a couple of years, Francis, and, and maybe fingers crossed this time next year, I might have a puppy. <laughs> All right. You've got my hundred percent support and same, same goes to your husband. You can do it, bud. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. I, every, so, um, it, it is it is a case of literally I'm I'm properly classically conditioning him and that whenever the topic of dogs come up, I'm like, here, have a chocolate, have a chocolate, have a chocolate. Oh yeah, puppy, have a chocolate, have a chocolate. <laughs> it's like that episode of the Big Bang Theory, you know? I'm just right. every time he talks positively about dogs, I'm like, Oh, do you want a beer? Um <laughs> All right. Well, I would love to see one of your videos wherein you're showcasing the tricks that you've taught your cat since you yeah, sure. that's what I you have. I am. Right. I have for any of your listeners, you can find me on Instagram and there are a couple of videos of me doing a few bits and pieces with Toffee up there. So check them out if uh, if you want to see some crazy stuff with her. But she's she's pretty good. She's un I would demonstrate something with you on the camera right now. But unfortunately, she's been very unwell this morning. So she's oh, currently that's fine. Not that's feeling fine. Too good. <laughs> right. We'll check your your website and your YouTube videos if you have any. All right. So as we near the end of our interview, very insightful, very enjoyable. I love it. Thank you so much again, Kat, for being with us. And I'm pretty sure you've had a dog growing up, right, Kat? But funnily enough, no. Really? <laughs> again, yeah, really. My family were always cats. I've family dogs and like my cousins and 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 aunts and uncles, yes. But me growing up, no. No, we didn't have dogs. So it's it's a really funny one because uh it, and it just goes to show you, you know, if you are a first time dog owner and you think, oh, my God, I've never done this. Don't worry, because I have never owned my own dog and I've been able to successfully coach multiple clients and, and hundreds of clients to successfully have great relationships with their pets. So don't be put off if you haven't had massive amounts of experience, because you can learn a lot and you can learn a lot by having fun with with other people's dogs as well. Wow, this is probably, uh, you're probably one of the most unique dog trainer I've ever yeah. known and ever met. And I'm pretty sure yeah, it's not just me so. who is saying this, but this is uncanny, a dog trainer who doesn't have her own dog, but instead she has cats, people. Yeah, it's, I, I think I could safely say this is, this is a, I, I think I am quite unique in this respect. And it's interesting as well, because for any dog trainers who are also listening to this, I imagine that you get this too, Francis. We all have days where we go, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm total imposter. No one's going to listen to me. I haven't got a clue. I don't know how to tackle this client. If you're a dog trainer and you have those feelings of inferiority or worries about what you're doing or if you're doing the best for your client imagine how much worse that is if you then go and i don't even have a dog so <laughs> all i would say is to anyone who feels like that you don't have to have a pet to be able to understand pets and i would also raise the other thing which is male gynecologist so you know you don't necessarily have to have everything to be able to do the job so yeah it's been a real learning experience for me and it it is really interesting because it does mean that i focus more on the human side rather than dog side sometimes because you know i'll be asking my clients i'll be saying look you know i don't know what it's like to be living with a puppy all the time but my other puppy clients do so let's have a bit of a community let's all mm. support each other because mm. that's where it can become really helpful and i've sort of said to them you do realize that as soon as i get my puppy i'm going to be like i'm going to be in your shoes so it's that level of like, you know, understanding and appreciating that you may not necessarily fully know what your client is going through and listening to them and hearing mm -hmm. from them that I think mm -hmm. is really important. And because I don't have my own dog, I can say to them, like, you know, what is it like? How are mm -hmm. you coping on a day to day basis? Mm -hmm. Because it must be tough. I only see you, you know, one hour and then you're there with the puppy for the rest of the time. So is it okay? Are you all right? Are you coping? Are you stressed? You know, and it's right. it's helpful to be able to pull together your clients and say, you know, can you support each other? So, right for anybody who would want to be a dog trainer, this is one of more the common more of the common questions that we get asked as professionals. How would you? What path would you recommend? In if someone wants to be a dog trainer or at least go into cat training or any training field at least well my number one experience my number one piece of advice would be to find a local dog trainer 
if you want to become a local dog trainer, find a local dog trainer and go and have a coffee with them. Ask them to tell you the good, the bad, the ugly, the great, because it's not always right. It's, it's not, not always, always good. just playing with puppies. It can be very emotionally draining and make sure mm -hmm. you know what you're getting into. So go and find your local dog trainers. A lot of people tend to think, and I don't know if you find this in your area, but I know that this was quite common. Um, luckily, it's not in mine. But a lot of people tend to think of, oh, my God, there's a new dog trainer on the scene. I'm threatened. Mm -hmm. I will now consolidate my business and I won't help anyone else out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Positive dog training means being positive in everything you do. That means encouraging your competitors because more often than not, you will find that there are synergies and there are ways that you can support each other. So I, I try and work closely with the other dog trainers in my area so that we're all doing the best for our clients and they have expertise in scent work or they may have expertise in agility. I do mm. puppies. One of them does more behavioral cases. So we cross refer. So I would say if you are wanting to become a dog trainer, get to know your local dog trainers because they may become your competition but mm -hmm. they can also become your greatest resource. Cool, um, cool. And the other thing I would also highly stress is seriously go and experience and have fun and try and get to know as many different dogs as you can. You know, go and shadow your local dog walkers, maybe volunteer at a shelter, get that experience of learning to see lots of different dogs because how a pug shows their facial expressions compared to a German shepherd is very different. And so, you know, being able to get your eye in and observing dog body language is huge and it will really set you up for a good foundation. Well said. And I love how you put it, everything else that as a positive reinforcement trainer, it's not just going to be you. It's going to be a community working together. Right. Okay. So my next and probably uh, one of the final questions that I'm going to ask is, well, since you don't really have a dog, um, <laughs> what animal, okay, or maybe you can name a dog, okay? It could be a client's dog that has probably tried to change your life or made you improve. So the question is, who is that dog behind the human for you? Who's my who's my soul dog? Okay, so <laughs> I don't know if my clients will ever listen to this, but the dog <laughs> that changed, the dog that changed my life has got to be a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, cocker spaniel who, up until the lockdown, was still one of my dog walking clients, and he's now coming up to six years old. I've known Kofi since he was ten weeks, uh, Kofi the cocker spaniel, and Kofi is just. Oh, he's just the most incredible, incredible dog because he has incredibly limited frustration tolerance. Mm. So whenever you are trying to train Kofi, you need to break it down into very small steps. And I have learned so much from him in terms of how to break down behavior into small bite-sized chunks, how to cope with body language signals, watching him teach puppies, watching him with older dogs, learning what's reinforcing for him rather than what I think is reinforcing for him. <laughs> I mean, he he has taught me so, so much. And yeah, just, just you know, the how classical conditioning can work in practice. There's a radio program here in the UK, which other UK listeners may be familiar with called The Archers. It's a sort of radio drama and it has a very particular soundtrack. Kofi and I, when we would come back from walks as a puppy, would always play after his walk because his walk was quite short. And we would always play tug and we would always play and we would always get home at around about the same time. So every day as a puppy, he would have playtime around about the time this theme song was coming on. And now at six years old, if he hears this theme song, he goes and gets one of his toys. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Kofi has just been, um, yeah, I'm still in, in, in touch with his owners. I, I, I see him as much as I can. And, yeah, he's the dog that changed my life big time. Because when I first started walking Kofi, uh, I didn't know one-tenth of what I know now. And to be able to learn and do my training whilst also learning from him he's mm -hmm. been my biggest tutor no no offense victoria but i've learned more from kofi than i learned from <laughs> <you>. <laughs> all right there you go the dog behind the human for cat pollock smith thank you so much cat for being on the show hopefully we'd be able to invite you again for a chat and then probably consult a few things maybe about cats <laughs> yeah absolutely i'd love that no i'd be more than happy to thank you very much for having me all right thank you so much again bye cat thank you Thank you. And now for the barking news. 
in a news article posted on goodnewsnetwork.org. Dogs trained to sniff out COVID-19 score near perfect in diagnosis of human sweat samples. Does sweat from someone infected with COVID-19 have a unique scent? Researchers in Paris and elsewhere believe it does, and we now know dogs can sniff it out. A new study from researchers at the National Veterinary School in Alfort, outside Paris, trained eight Belgian Malinois shepherds to identify the smell of COVID-19 in the sweat of infected individuals. The dog's overall success rate was near perfect, correctly guessing an average of 95% of samples. Four dogs successfully identified a positive COVID sweat sample 100% of the time. Many of the countries which have had the greatest success in maintaining low numbers of COVID case numbers have done so with widespread use of testing. Using dogs, according to the scientists, would greatly increase the speed at which people could be tested since the dog's highly developed sense of smell was first used to detect malignant tumors for bladder, colorectal, and other cancers in the 1980s. The idea for disease-detecting canines moved outside the field of oncology into research studies for epilepsy, diabetes, and even Parkinson's. The researchers collected 168 samples of armpit perspiration from COVID-positive individuals who were not in need of significant medical supervision. They used 18 dogs that had been trained to detect explosives, colorectal cancer, and survivors during search and rescue missions. And now for other news to be brought to you by Irene. In an article posted on spin.ph, beloved pet dog of Senator Manny Pacquiao dies after an unfortunate accident. The well-loved Jack Russell Terrier named Pac-Man, which became the official mascot of boxing sensation Manny Pacquiao, died Sunday after it was accidentally ran over at the garage of the Senator's mansion in General Santa City. Pac-Man was a constant fixture in Pacquiao's fights and training camp since 2006, when the dog was first brought to the U.S. while the boxing break was preparing for his third and final bout with Mexican Eric Morales. The dog was likewise present in training camp when his master made his history in 2015. After engaging Floyd Mayweather Jr. in a welterweight title unification bout that went down as the richest fight ever in boxing history. Shortly after the accident, Pac-Man was brought to a veterinary clinic, but the injury suffered by the dog was too severe for him to survive. The Pacquiao couple nonetheless understood everything was an accident. Run free, Pac-Man the dog, you will be missed. And that's all for the barking news for this episode. Catch us again next episode for your fill of doggy news from around the world. This is Irene for Barking News. Before we go, we want to share our dog code of the day. Money can buy you a dog, but only love can make him wag his tail. By Kinky Friedman. And that's it for today's episode. Please. Don't forget to follow us on our social media pages like Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Just search for Dog Coach Francis on those three platforms. Also, aside from Spotify, you can also catch The Dog Behind the Human on other audio streaming platforms like Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. Again, this has been your host, Dog Coach Francis. And like I always say, keep healthy, keep safe, and don't forget to pet your dog.